What up, Cavs Nation? I'm your host, Ethan Sands, and I'm back with another episode of the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. I'm joined by your favorite beat reporter, Chris Fedor. What up, Chris? Ethan, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm jealous of you, Chris. It's cold over here. What's the weather looking like in Orlando today? Easy, man. It's cold everywhere. It's actually nicer today. Today is the first day on this road trip that I've gone outside with only one pair of pants on. Everything else has been a two pair of pants day. Atlanta was 15 degrees. Atlanta was under 20 degrees both days that we were there. So that was just miserable. And today when we woke up here in Orlando, it actually crept above 60 for the first time because yesterday it was in the mid to low 50s. So I will take this. It's not as hot as it usually is. And a couple of days after we leave here in Orlando, it's going to be in the 80s. So wish we were here and it timed up well, but I'll take mid 60s given what I've been dealing with. Yeah, Hotlanta was not as advertised. No, it was not. I even said that to somebody. I said, wait a minute. I thought this was supposed to be Hotlanta. What is going on here? Global warming, man. (laughs) All right. Well, Chris, it's Monday, so you know what that means. It's time to record this week's episode of Hey Chris. You ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. All right. Let's get into it. First question, do you think we are going to see Evan Mobley firing threes at a higher volume when he comes off injury? No, I don't think so, because we've talked about this before on the podcast, Ethan. Evan's the kind of guy who tries to make the right basketball play, and I think he understands that three-point shooting is still a weakness of his. Shooting in general is still a weakness of his, and for him to be at his most effective and for him to be at his most effective for the Cavs as well, it's playing around the rim, it's playing inside the paint, it's not trying to get outside of his own comfort zone, it's not trying to get outside of the things that he does well. So I think once he gets to a point in his career and in his development, Ethan, where he feels like the three-point shot can be a weapon for him, then I think he'll start expanding his game out to the perimeter, and I think you'll see some more volume three-point shooting. But he's not at that point where he trusted enough to be that kind of player. Speaking of three-point shooters, the next question is, where do you see Sam Merrill fitting into the rotation if and when the roster gets back to full strength? They need what he brings to the table. And I just wonder if it's going to be a situation where, you know, we have talked about this, Ethan, when it comes to J.B. Bickerstaff, he is most comfortable with a 9-10 man rotation. And I just don't think that anything drastic is going to change that. But I wonder if he's going to try and just minimize minutes of certain guys and like pull a couple of minutes from each player and give them to somebody like Sam Merrill because they need his shooting. They need his floor spacing. They need his ball and body movement. He is somebody who is really, really impactful for this offense and he takes it to a different level even if he's not making shots because he commands so much defensive attention. There have been multiple times over the last two and a half, three weeks where just his movement alone on the offensive end created a layup for Donovan Mitchell, or it created a driving lane for Karis LeVert that wouldn't otherwise be there, or it created a dunk for Jared Allen that wouldn't be there because the defender stuck to Sam and they didn't want to leave him open because they understand A sliver of space, an open three for somebody like Sam Merrill is probably going to go down at like a 45 to 50% rate. He's that kind of shooter. 
I do think they need to find a way to keep him in the rotation. I think the best path to that is taking away some minutes just from each player. And if it means Donovan going from 38-ish to 34 and Darius Garland trimming a little bit and Max Struess getting a little bit of his trimmed, like that to me is the best solution to making sure everybody has enough time and making sure that this weapon on the offensive end doesn't just get buried on the depth chart. Yeah, and I mean, from a guy that was collecting a lot of DNPs to start the season, he's definitely rose in the pecking order of the rotation. So we'll just have to see what rotation J.B. Bickerstaff wants to do to make sure that Sam Merrill stays in the rotation because, like Chris says, like, the shooting that he brings, the spacing that he brings, and also sometimes just the confusion that he brings can create offense for a lot of different players on the Cavs. I mean, the other possibility too, Ethan, is so during this stretch where the Cavs haven't had Evan Mobley, they've obviously focused more on improving their point of attack defense. Isaac Okoro, Dean Wade, they've been really, really good at the point of attack because they just don't have the same protection inside. But here's the thing, like if Evan Mobley comes back and he forms that intimidating two-man rim-protecting duo with Jared Allen, then like the Cavs don't need as much what Isaac Okoro brings to the table, if that makes sense. And they may look at the situation saying, we need more of what Sam Merrill brings to the table. He just is so good when it comes to the offensive end of the floor and what he means to the team's success on that end. And if they feel like they're getting enough defense with the reintroduction of Evan Mobley, maybe they're willing to take a little step back defensively, whether it's Isaac Okoro or Dean Wade, and find a way to give some of those minutes to Sam Merrill and hope that they get a boost on the offensive end. Because if it's not Isaac Okoro, you know, Karis LeVert can play the three and then Sam Merrill can take Karis's shooting guard minutes. You know what I mean? So I think the versatility that the Cavs have on this roster and some of their individual players being able to play and guard multiple positions is certainly going to help J.B. Bickerstaff when it comes to trying to find minutes for everybody. And that's part of the reason, and we've talked about this multiple times on the podcast, it's part of the reason why it's harder to find consistent minutes for Craig Porter Jr. Because there are two positions that he can play. That's it. There are two positions that he can guard. That's it. Point guard and shooting guard. Whereas Karis LeVert can play the one, two, or the three. Max Struess can play the two, three, or four. Dean Wade, theoretically, can guard three through five, maybe even two through five, depending on the matchup and who those twos are. And I think Sam Merrill has enough size and length at times to get away with playing some small forward minutes if need be. Right. Next question from DJ from Colorado Springs. He says, hey, Chris, the Cavs new motion offense has been a delight to watch. Much like last year around this time, the team spread the court and moved the ball exceptionally well. I know they have a better bench this year, but do you worry that the slower pace and higher intensity in the playoffs will cause problems with their game flow, much like the Knicks did to us last year? No, because like part of the reason why the Knicks were successful on the defensive end of the floor against the Cavs, number one, it's because they had a really good defense. And Tom Thibodeau is a defensive mastermind. And you get that guy in a seven-game series, and he's game-planned against Kobe Bryant. He's game-planned against LeBron James. And he has created defensive concepts that have bothered some of the best players in the world. So you have to give the Knicks credit. 
and you have to give Tom Thibodeau credit for some of the strategies that he unleashed against the Cavs. But I think part of the reason why the Cavs were so easy to guard is because they had personnel issues. They had clear weaknesses that the New York Knicks exploited. There were two guys on the offensive end, Ethan, that the Knicks cared about. That's it. Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell. Everybody else, they were like, (laughs) Isaac Okoro is not going to beat us. Jetty Osman's not going to beat us. You know, Evan Mobley's not ready for this stage, and he's not at a stage of his own development where, you know, he can make us pay in four-on-three situations, and he can make the right decisions, and he could finish over the top of Julius Randle and Mitchell Robinson and Isaiah Hartenstein, and we're not all that worried about Jared Allen because he doesn't have a whole ton to his offensive arsenal. You know, so if we go all the way back to April, that version of the Cavs was very, very flawed. And that version of the Cavs was easy to guard. They didn't have guys that created the movement that Max Struess and Sam Merrill have been able to create, right? They didn't have the floor spacing guys like Max Struess, Sam Merrill, George Niang. Karis LeVert wasn't playing the way that he has played this year for the Cavs. He was coming off a regular season that was one of the worst in his entire career. Isaac Okoro going into that series against the Knicks was less than 100% because he had missed the end of the regular season. He was still recovering from an injury. So I think, yeah, the Cavs, if they play against the Knicks, there are going to be some matchup-related issues that they're going to have. It's going to be that way no matter who they play in the first round of the playoffs. But because of all the diversity that they have with this offense, they can go pick and roll heavy if they want to because they have elite pick and roll players. They can move around off the ball because they have guys who can create that movement. They can run at times their offense through the bigs because Jared Allen has shown to be a bit more of an offensive hub and a bit more of an offensive fulcrum than he was last year, at least more comfortable in that particular role. So they have different styles that they can play this year because of the personnel. And they just couldn't play multiple styles last year because they didn't have the personnel to match those things. So J.B. Bickerstaff didn't have very many options that he could go to off of his bench to create a different style of offense and to create some openings for Donovan and Darius and try and make things easier on them. So I think given the personnel additions this past offseason and what the Cavs have been able to find within the offense during this particular stretch is going to better help them when teams gear up to try and take away what it is they do best. This time, if teams try to take away what they do best, the Cavs have more potential counters because they just have more arrows in their quiver. Right. And I couldn't agree with you more, Chris. Like, the team itself is just so much better than it was last year. And we see the growth that they're making, not only with players being out, but also understanding that they're growing into the schemes that they have set. They are finally understanding what game styles work best for them on a nightly basis. But Chris, I'm a little parched from all the information that you have been giving out. So we're going to take a quick break so I can get a quick drink. And for our listeners, if you like food and drinks, and who doesn't, Cleveland.com is breaking new ground with our lively new podcast about dining and drinking in the greater Cleveland area. Hosts Josh Duke and Alex DeRoos 
crackle with their fun talk about the latest foodie happenings, joined by the most in-the-know experts in town, Mark Bona, Paris Wolf, and Pete Chikarian. It's called Dine, Drink, C-L-E, and you can find it anywhere you download podcasts. Give it a listen and quench your thirst and feed that appetite. When we come back to the Wine and Gold Talk podcast, we're going to discuss how Jared Allen and Evan Mobley will adapt to being in the same paint with each other once again. But before then, become a Cavs insider and interact with Chris and I by subscribing to Subtext. Let us know if you think the Cavs should stick with a four-shooter starting lineup or if the Twin Towers in the paint is your preferred look for the Cavs. Sign up for a 14-day free trial or visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page. If you don't like it, that's fine. All you have to do is text the word stop. It's easy, but we can tell you that the people who signed up stick around because this is the best way to get insider coverage on the Cavs from myself and Chris. This isn't just our podcast. It's your podcast. And the only way to have your voice heard is through subtext. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. We got a couple more questions from our subtexters, Chris. Let's get into it. Dave from PA asks, is Jared Allen's jumper underrated? He had some really nice long twos against the Hawks. Is his jumper a potential solution to spacing problems in the Allen and Mobley combinations? He works on it constantly. He worked on it throughout the course of the offseason, and it has given the Cavs a little bit more room to operate. There were a couple of times... In that game against Atlanta where Dean Wade or Max Struess or Sam Merrill would be working that two-man game with Jared Allen and they would be driving in a little bit too far into the teeth of the defense with Jalen Johnson and Clint Capella waiting. And then in the second half, they kind of made the adjustment to have Jarrett stop his roll right around the elbow extended and knock down that shot. If teams are going to have to honor that a little bit more as the season goes on because he's making that at a high clip. And right now, Ethan, he's shooting about 50% from mid-range. That's about as good as you could ask for for somebody who is already so good at finishing around the rim and so efficient with his touches in the paint and around the dunker spot. So like, if he can start extending his game more consistently and knocking down that shot from about 14 to 16 feet instead, yeah, I do think that's going to open up some more things for the offense. And not only that, it's going to make some of those defenders, whether it's Clint Capella, Nikola Vucevic, Nick Claxton, like any of the guys that have guarded Jared Allen recently, it's going to make those guys pay more attention to that particular shot and try and defend against that particular shot a little bit more. And it's going to allow Jarrett to use his speed, quickness, and athleticism to get past them on the dribble drive. And then he can finish around the rim or he could set it up for his teammates, whether they're in the corner or they're diving to the basket. So I definitely think Jarrett knocking down the mid-range jumper with the efficiency that he's knocking it down right now is definitely a way to create different kind of spacing. Because here's the thing, Ethan, so many people think about spacing as just three-point shooting, but there are different kinds of ways to create that spacing. Jared Allen can create vertical spacing, but this will create potentially some more spacing around the paint. And I think that's 
only something that Jared is going to continue to work on as this season goes on. And the more he knocks down those shots, the more confidence he's going to have and the more trust he's going to have in that jumper. And it just unlocks a little bit more for the Cavs on offense. And a follow-up question from a stub texter on JA is, where does JA's usage go with Evan and DG coming back? Four times he's topped 18% prior to Mobley's injury, and he's done it eight times since. Not a super high number, but would like to see him continue to be in the top 25% of bigs. Chris, I think the Cavs could continue to run a three-shooters lineup with Evan and Jarrett in the paint on defense. But having Evan draw larger defenders out to the perimeter and still allow Jared Allen to work at the free throw line as a facilitator, because we know how much J.A. loves to throw lobs to Evan. And I'm visualizing a pin down screen by Evan near the corner for a shooter to come up. And when the defenders try and decide whether to switch or stay, then Evan rolls to the paint giving J.A. the option between a wide-open shooter in Max Struess, Sam Merrill, Jordan Yang, or an open lane for him to lob to Evan, or even create for himself amongst the confusion. So here's the thing, Ethan. There is an obvious hierarchy when it comes to every basketball team, including the Cavs. And as much as they want this to be a democratic approach, as much as they want this to be a bunch of different guys involved on every single possession on the offensive end. That aspect of it can stay. But Darius is going to need his touches. Darius is going to need his shot attempts. Evan is going to need his touches. He's going to need his shot attempts. Over the last 15 games, like the difference has been the number of guys that are touching it on a per-possession basis and the number of passes that the Cavs are making. And when guys just touch the ball on a given possession, they feel more involved. They feel more engaged. Um, They're not out of rhythm the way that they would be if they went multiple possessions without even being involved or touching the ball. So I just think the easiest solution to this is, and it's something that J.B. Bickerstaff is going to have to look at, and it's something that Evan Mobley is going to have to accept. The truth is, like, because of the success that the Cavs have had during this stretch, the same role that Evan had at the beginning of the season is just not waiting for him right now. It is not there. It is not the best thing for the Cavs to have him being used that way, get that many shot attempts per game. It's not. So because Jarrett is a more polished offensive player, and because Jarrett looks more comfortable as being that touch big man, that can create offense, create triggers and things like that. Evan is just going to have to take a slight step back in terms of shot attempts, in terms of usage, and in terms of touches. Because the last thing that the Cavs can afford is for Jared Allen to go from third in the pecking order of touches per game, which is what he is during this stretch behind Donovan Mitchell and Max Struess, to sixth the way that he was at the beginning of the season, behind Donovan Mitchell, Darius Garland, Max Struess, Karis LeVert, and Evan Mobley. He was getting about as many touches per game as George Niang. And that level of involvement for Jared Allen was not good enough at the beginning of the season. That's not the right way to maximize one of the 50 best players in the league. And I think this stretch has shown the Cavs that Jared can do more on the offensive end at this stage of his development than Evan can do. And the offense can function at a higher level when Jared gets the involvement that Evan was getting at the beginning of the season. 
So if anything, to me, it needs to flip and Evan needs to move further down the hierarchy. I think on the defensive end, the Cavs have found a way to let specific players move in a free safety role to help and control possessions. Because, I mean, we're talking about the offensive end, but I think we also have to look at the defensive end, too. Like, when Evan returns, I think the Cavs will get to decide, depending on the matchups, whether Jarrett or Evan will be the so-called free safety each night. Currently, Isaac Okoro and Dean Wade's on-ball defense has allowed Jarrett and Donovan Mitchell, to me, to play as free safeties, helping Jarrett focus on maintaining the paint and getting his so-beloved three-second calls and rebounding as well, while Donovan has focused on the passing lanes and disrupting the opposing offense's flow, which has led to him being second in the league in steals. I just think if this is going to work for the Cavs, that they have to prioritize both. Like, we understand the difference that Evan Mobley is going to bring on the defensive end, but we need to make sure that he's also adding, or more importantly, not taking away from the offensive production that they have begun to create. And that's something that remains to be seen because the line that the organization had used for the last year and a half, two years, was always, look, we get it. We're losing something on the offensive end with Jarrett and Evan playing together. We don't have as much shooting. We don't have as much spacing. The floor is more crowded, but we feel like what we're gaining on the defensive end of the floor is so significant that we're okay sacrificing a little bit on the offensive end. That was always the organizational line, and there was a ton of truth behind it. But now that they have found this offense, the kind of dynamic offense that was missing in the playoff series against New York, the kind of dynamic offense that would have won that series against New York. Like they can't afford to take a significant step back on the offensive end just because they're trying to reintegrate Evan Mobley. The thing that I'll also say, Ethan, is for some of Evan's flaws on the offensive end of the floor, and as we've talked about, he is still a work in progress. He is still developing a jumper. He is still developing a two-man game with Max Struess and a two-man game with Darius Garland. Like, this is a young player who is still evolving. He is <laughs> he is one of the most impactful players on a nightly basis, despite not having the threat of a three-point shot, despite not having a polished game, despite not being able to consistently play out on the perimeter on the offensive end of the floor. So we can't just ignore the fact that the Cavs are welcoming back one of the most impactful players in the entire NBA and what that means for them moving forward. Like, yeah, I get it. There are questions. There are legitimate questions about how it's all going to fit together, how the Cavs are going to look, the style that they're going to play. But being able to reintroduce one of the most impactful players in the entire league is not a bad thing. It is a good problem for J.B. Bickerstaff to try and solve here. All right, Chris, last question of the pod. Circling back to Dave from PA for a fun question to round out this week's episode of Hey Chris. He says that Jordan is arguably the greatest player ever with arguably the greatest sneakers ever. It lines up perfectly. But who is the least regarded player with great shoes and who is the best player to have not so good shoes? Personally, I've only ever hooped in Kobe's or Kyrie's, and they are both pretty high caliber players and shoes. I've honestly heard complaints recently about the grip of LaMelo's shoes, but 
they look really nice. So that depends on if people are buying them for the look or to actually hoop it. And I'm going to be really transparent. Before I got on the beat, I hadn't really heard of Donovan Mitchell having a signature shoe. But I know he just gave them out at an overtime elite game and event. So that must mean that they're pretty decent to play in. So if I had to say a player that has a nice shoe and is pretty high regarded in the NBA, but they're not the best to play in, I would have to say LaMelo just because of what I've been hearing lately. And then a good player that has good shoes that hasn't been highly regarded in the shoe market, I would say Donovan Mitchell. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've always hooped in Nikes during my basketball playing career that has long ended. So it's hard to speak on, like, if I put on a pair of Donovan Mitchell sneakers or if I put on a pair of Lamellos, are those going to be comfortable? Are those going to be something that helped me on the basketball court? I don't know. I look for how cool shoes look. I look for colorways. That's where I'm at. As somebody who considers themselves a sneakerhead and tries to match their shoes with the outfit that they're wearing and look at different designs and different colors. I don't focus as much on comfort as I do on style and look. I have multiple pairs of Jordans. I've got ones. I've got the Concord 11s. I have Nike Pegasus. I have a pair of Kyrie's. I have a pair of Donovan's. I have a pair of LeBron's. So I'm all over the map. And for me, it's just, do they catch my eye when I go into a Nike store or an Adidas store or a Dick's Sporting Goods or something like that? So you might like LaMelo's because of the I might. I might like Stephen Curry's. Who knows? If they catch my eye. I mean, I was in the Nike employee store in Portland when we went on that road trip. And there was a pair of Damian Lillard's that caught my eye. There were a pair of Giannis shoes that caught my eye uh, just because of how they looked when they were on the shelf. Now, I, I tried both on and I didn't love the way that they looked once I was wearing them. And I didn't love the way that they felt once I was wearing them. Well, that's just me because I got weird feet, low arches. Not a good thing to have, Ethan. And with that, <laughs> we will wrap up today's episode of the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. But remember to become a Cavs insider and interact with Chris and I by subscribing to Subtext. Sign up for a 14-day free trial or visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page. You can let us know whose shoe you would want to wear if you had an NBA sneaker you would want to play in. And if you decide if you're going to get a shoe based on what it looks like or how it feels or how you play in it. But if you don't like it, that's fine. All you have to do is text the word stop. It's easy. But we can tell you that the people who sign up stick around because this is the best way to get insider coverage on the Cavs from myself and Chris. This isn't just our podcast. It's your podcast. And the only way to have your voice heard is through subtext. Y'all be safe. We out.